We'll do that for next year. Okay, so uh, welcome again. It's good to have you. Good to have you, those of you who are joining us online. We're always blessed to have you to do so. Let's turn to Matthew's Gospel this morning. We are still in our study. Obviously, we'll be. Probably we'll have some special messages coming up as we get closer to the holidays, but we're going to reserve our time now for continuing on in the Gospel letter. We're going to pick up in verses 12 through 15, but... um, I want to make just a little bit of a disclaimer here because uh, there are times where the scriptures become a little challenging to discern. I don't know if you've ever had that problem or not, uh, but those of us who spend time trying to prepare it to teach to others know that there are times where it gets a little bit challenging to understand the exact interpretation of things. Not that God is unclear, it's just that our humanness is having a hard time figuring it out. But I think we've done a good job this today, and you'll, I think you'll, you'll come to the same conclusion. Um, but I just want to ask you to be patient and put your thinking caps on. I'm not going to try to give you a lot of information. I was going to try to cover all the way through verse 24 today uh, because it all fits the same context, but there was just way too much information. And so we're going to break this up into two messages so you just have enough to digest today, and then we'll come back next time and we'll pick up on the second part of this. And so um, let's listen to what the Lord says, and then I'll break it down for you the best I know how, and hopefully it'll have some meaning for you. So stand with me, if you will, as we read uh, the word of the Lord and give him honor. We always want to be careful to do so. Picking up in verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Amen. All right, you may be seated. That's all we want to deal with today. Now again, I just want to uh, beg you to uh, be diligent in your hearing and your listening this morning. As I'm only going to give you two major thoughts, but I'm going to have to cover some things that are a little challenging to follow. But we got to do that in order to really understand what the Lord is saying both to Israel and then also to us as a people. Now, saying that, you'll remember that Matthew is writing predominantly to Hebrew people because Jesus has said that they were to reach God's chosen people first. And you'll know that the church age will come after this, but the church age has not started at this point in Matthew's writings. And so uh, that doesn't come to the book of Acts after the gospel messages are completed and after Jesus is gone. Uh, So now Jesus' message predominantly is to the Hebrew people. And so you have to keep that in mind as we're going through this. But we'll translate some of this to make it applicable to us. Okay, so I've titled this, though, Warnings to Observe if You Want to Enter into Heaven. Warnings to Observe if You Want to Enter Heaven into heaven. Now, I'm saying that because if you've been listening to Matthew's letter carefully, you know that it has been filled with promises of blessings for eternal life, but also filled with warnings for those people who are not diligent to listen. And that's because the Lord is very unlike our culture. Our culture is blurring the lines and has been ever since the fall of man. But you and I living in this time and day know that the culture is blurring the distinction between what is truth and what is error. 
Again, if you're listening carefully to all that's happening, you're seeing that there is a flatlining, as I like to think of it, as what really is truth and what is not. So much so that truth has become uh, irrelevant in some ways, or it's become just what somebody thinks it is and another person has a definition of truth. Well, in God's kingdom, that's not the case. He is the king. And so what he says is the way it goes. And guess where God's kingdom dwells? In the hearts of men and women, but also he is the creator of all things. You and I know that. And so he is calling on us and all people really to hear the message that he has put forth by the prophets over the centuries, by his own son, and even to us now as we have the completed word written to us. So we need to listen carefully to what the Lord is saying. And in this section, like he has been delivering to us, there are more promises of blessing, but also promises of eternal damnation for those who are not listening. So let's just look at a couple examples, even back to the Sermon on the Mount, which is when Jesus started his ministry in chapter 5. You don't have to go there. I'm going to kind of just talk us through this. Uh, Don't try to keep up with this necessarily unless you just want to jot down the references. In Matthew 5, when Jesus began the sermon, he said things like, Blessed are the poor in spirit, listen, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He said in verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Verse 10, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's wonderful that Joey brought that up today about what today is in, a, in the church calendar. Skip to verse 12, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great, excuse me, in heaven is great. Now, just simply there, and I'm going to share several other verses with you, you see the Lord laying out a distinction between what is right and wrong. There are promises he's uh, giving out, and there are curses that he is pronouncing on those. If you read between the lines here, in verse 20 of chapter 5, he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Very distinct. Verses 13 through 14 in chapter 7, as he's closing out his sermon. You'll remember all of this as we went through these messages. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads where? To destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Verse 21 of chapter 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. And you remember just a few weeks ago as we were in chapter 10, when Jesus sent out the disciples, he says, go into the houses, go into the places wherever the Spirit leads you, and and if they accept you, wonderful. If not, shake the dust from your feet. And he says, truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Again, very clear warning there. Matthew 10, 32 through 33. Everyone who confesses me before men, I will confess him before my Father. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. And then finally, in verses 38 and 39 of chapter 10, Jesus says very clearly, He who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Now, I'm reading all of those verses not to sound like a downer. Some of you might be hearing this morning, here this morning, and even listening online and saying, that's not what I want to go to church for. I mean, the world is filled with bad stuff. I want to hear good things. I want to hear wholesome stuff. 
And I have to say to you, that's what I want to deliver to you. I take no delight in standing up Sundays and saying, here are the doomsday sounding kind of things. But the clarity of the Lord's Spirit is saying to us, listen, there is reality in this life. And the reality is you cannot just make life what you want it to be. There is a heaven and a hell. You will go one place or the other. And the Lord throughout history of man has been delivering that message. And the point for this morning is, as much as we want to hear the warm fuzzies and the, the joy of what it means to live just even an earthly life, and all that has its place, the real message that the Lord came to deliver is the message of the kingdom. The message of the kingdom. So listen attentively. And, and the reality behind it all, beloved, is, is that if you want to feel good about your life, I mean really good about your life, the Lord is teaching us that you have to first feel really bad about your life. In other words, you've got to see yourself as He sees you, undone, sinful, on your way to hell, and it's only through Him that you can be rescued. There's nothing you can do on your own except simply just accept the gift of His salvation. Okay? And that's the only way life is going to get really, really good. So you have to go there. All right. Now, I'm saying all those things also because not only are they warnings to us, but because He loves us. And I hope you hear that. Sometimes when people hear the messages of what seem to be doom and gloom, they think, oh, God doesn't love me. I mean, why would He be giving these, these direct black and white statements? Either I've got to live this way or this is what's going to happen. And that's doom and gloom to me. But the truth is, beyond all of what I said, is that God loves us and He wants us to be with Him. You remember John 3.16? For God so what? Loved. Who did He love? The world. Right? So much so that He gave sacrificially His own Son so that through His death we can have life, eternal life. Just the very fact is what we just sang a moment ago, and even in that verse of Jesus giving his life sacrificially for us, tells us this is a big deal. This is a big deal. This being eternal life, the decision to follow Christ and the consequences of not following him. Why would God send his son to die in our place if this weren't a life-altering situation? So you get the point. In fact, in verse 17 and 18 of John 3, 16, God continues the same thought. For God did not send the, the Son into the world to judge the world. That's not why He came originally. But what? He came to save the world. Save the world from what? Save the world from eternal punishment that must come on all unrighteousness. Verse 18, here's the key. He who believes in Him is not judged. Wow, that's awesome, isn't it? Belief comes in the heart. It's by faith, just simply trusting in who God is. But he who does not believe has been judged already. Why? Because they've rejected the only one that can save them. And so there's nothing left that could happen but to be under the judgment. So, God wants us to follow him into his kingdom. That's why he came. That's why he's sharing all that he is, so that we'll enjoy him now and for eternity. And that's 
his message for us this morning. Now, I'm saying all of that because that's what the Lord has been teaching us. If you're listening carefully through all the instruction he's been giving up to this point, he will continue to do so. That's why he came. But today we're in this part of the text, and so we've got to listen specifically what he wants us to know in this moment. So let's do that. So I've broken this message up into two parts, two warnings that I see out of this, and I hope hopefully this will make sense to you. Number one, the first warning is if you want to go to heaven... It's going to come at a great cost. If you want to go to heaven, it's going to come at a great cost. Look with me at verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. Now, before we get into the ifs, ands, and buts of this verse, just understand that there are really two translations of this. And both of them have their place. And so it's not like one is wrong and the other one is right, but there is one that seems to fit the context better. And in fact, your translation may show a little bit different version of this. I'll get to that in just a minute. I'm following the New American Standard, as you know, and this is the way it is written. So let's talk about the negative. When my wife asks me if, uh, when she tells me I have good news and bad news, which one do you want first? I usually say, give me the bad news because I like to finish on the good news. And so let's do that this morning. Let's start on the bad news, if, it's, if you want to interpret it that way. But really, it's more of just the negative interpretation of the Greek uh, construct of the, of the sentence here. So the negative is, John the Baptist was born in a time where the world was very ungodly. You know that. And, and because of his message, he became a real thorn in the flesh of the people. They didn't like his message. They didn't want to hear what he had to say. In fact, so much so that the ungodly people of John's day did everything they could to get rid of him. Eventually, you know, Herod would do so, and we'll see that as we get to chapter 14 more specifically. And it was because, as I said, his message was irritating. They didn't like what he had to say. It was irritating because it was a message of, you got to change. And nobody likes to hear that. I don't think there's any of us in the room right now that wants to hear a message of there's something about us that we have to change. Now, in our maturity, hopefully we grow up in life and depending on what the subject is, we'll say, okay, I understand. I need to make some changes in this or that area. But there's not one of us that really likes for somebody to say, hey, you're doing that wrong. Do it this way. We fight against that. We resist that, especially if we think we're already doing it right. And that was the Jews in this case. They had gotten so far off track in their theological understanding of what God had originally said that when John came along and said, no, you guys, the very ones that God has chosen need to repent. The spiritual leaders need to repent. And they didn't like that. They didn't want to be told that. And again, that's the problem with humanity in general, as I was just saying. Who wants to believe that they're right and on the right path only to be told that they're not? That may be some of your testimonies, that you lived your life spiritually thinking that you were on the right path and you got to a place where Jesus really revealed himself to who he really is through his word and you went, oh my goodness, I've been on the wrong road all this time. What appeared to be the right religious road ended up being a religious road to hell, not a relationship with Jesus. And so, again, that may be your testimony. But that was John's message. Repent. Why? Because no longer is the king coming, but he's here. He's literally here on the earth. And that's what he came to do. Now, repentant wasn't just John's message. It had been the message of all the prophets. You go back as far as you want to go, and you look at people like Zechariah, 
who had a message of repentance to Israel, to Jeremiah, who had a message of repentance when they were in captivity, to Jonah, who had his message of repentance. And every child remembers the story of Jonah. Jonah didn't want to even deliver the message because he knew God would forgive him. But God says, no, go give them the message. They've got to turn their hearts around. And they did. Isaiah and Daniel. But again, none of those people, at least in Israel, wanted to hear. And so Jesus comes along now just before he's leaving and he says to the religious leaders of the Jews in those days, listen, which one of the Pharisees, which one of the prophets did you not even persecute? Acts chapter 7, verse 22, 52. That's exactly what he says, almost verbatim. They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one. Imagine that the religious mind, the one who thought they knew what was right, literally got rid of the true messengers of God. Talking about being deceived. Jesus says, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. In other words, you become just like that. Because you're rejecting the very one who is the Son of God. The King himself is on the scene. That's me is what Jesus is saying. And they would do the same thing to John and eventually kill him, as I mentioned already. Now, that's the negative interpretation of verse 12. Not not wrong, but just the negative side of the interpretation. That John was so mistreated, his message was so rejected violently, it was as if heaven suffered because of the violence of men. That's the way the verse appears to be written. That violent men basically were able to get rid of the message of God and the prophets of God. But let's go to the positive interpretation here. And that is, since John came, if you look at the verse 12 there, and that's about 18 months Jesus is talking about, there's been a radical shift, really, in the people's mindset. In other words, more and more people are beginning to hear the message of John. And they're also beginning to see that I am, I am the one who is the Messiah and have come to set the hearts of people free. And of those people, like a mighty army, they are pressing forward. They are moving forward with me, wrestling, striving diligently to enter into the kingdom. Now, I want to be clear here again. Salvation is a gift from God. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. God sent his son. His son did the work for us in paying the redemptive price. We just simply believe. It's not necessarily an emotion. Emotions come with it. It's a fact. Jesus came, we believe. And for the hearts who believe that, it becomes salvation for them, okay? But now, in this sense, the Lord is saying, there are people who see who Jesus is, they're hearing him and responding to his word and everything that he's saying, and they are now concerned about the life that they're supposed to be living. And so there's friction, there's tension between their flesh and between their spiritual minds. And there's this battle that now is raging and understanding in them that there is a cost to them that they must pay to live godly lives, which is what Jesus means when he says, these people are forcefully entering it. Now, if you just take that and go to Luke's gospel, in Luke 16, this is how Luke writes this. He says, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John... Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. In other words, they're hearing. 
This is how Luke records this. Matthew doesn't record it the exact same way, but Luke records it a little bit more clearly in this way. Interestingly, if you have an NIV this morning and you're looking at your verse, this is what you're seeing of our text today in verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. You see the switch there? That's really a more accurate translation. That's a better and clearer translation than what King James and even NASB has done. And John is playing a major role in this change in the people. That's Jesus' point. He's looking at John still through all this time, these last couple weeks. He's in with John's mind today, and he's saying to the people, listen, you're still trying to figure out John? John is the forerunner. He's the prophet who came to let you know that I'm coming on the scene, which is exactly what the angel told Zacharias, John's father, way back before John was born. Go back to Luke chapter 1, verse 17. Gabriel says, it is he... Speaking of John the Baptist, and he's talking to Zacharias, who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitudes of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Okay, again, with those few thoughts, and there's many more things we could go to, I just want you to see this is more accurate in a translation as far as the context Goes. And so if we hold this interpretation, this, again, for lack of better words, this positive interpretation, Jesus is saying there are many people who are finding their way into the kingdom, and it's because they are taking the narrow road, if we wanted to use his Sermon on the Mount. They're living their life, fighting their way through. They're living a life of repentance. Not only have they repented, but they're living their daily walk in a heart of repentance, which is a very difficult road. Why is it difficult to live a life of repentance? Now, let's just be clear about re repentances first before you answer that. Repentance is, not only was I going this direction physically, maybe, or living my life this way in a certain direction, but when I encountered Christ and really see Him for who He is as Lord, I changed my heart with His power working in me, the Spirit of God has to be doing this, and I'm now going this direction. I've done a change in my life, and spiritually I've made a change. That's what repentance is. You see the error of your ways, and you make the change. But that's a very difficult road to walk on. It's a very demanding road because it calls you and me to look at our hearts regularly, to see what's really going on in there. To know and believe that there is a battle that rages within us called this flesh versus the spirit. It's what Paul will identify in himself, the Apostle Paul, when he writes his letter to the church in Rome. Listen to this as we look at verse 18 of chapter 7. Now don't try to find it, just follow it on the screen unless you can get there quickly. Paul talking about himself. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. There you go. This is the Apostle Paul. For everybody who says, oh, no, there's a lot that good is in me. Now, surfacely, there's good that is in us. But Paul's saying that in the depths of my soul, in who I am as a human being, there's nothing good in me alone. That is in my flesh. The willing is present in me. In other words, I want to do this. I mean, I want to live the life that he wants me to live. But the doing, the actual living it out is not there. 
For the good that I want to do, I don't do. But I practice the very evil that I don't want. How many of you can identify with that? You wake up and you say, Lord, I'm going to live my life for you today. Praise you for saving me. And in five minutes, you turn around and you say, oh, why did I say that? Why did I do that? I shouldn't have done that. And you ah, oh, but Lord, I don't want to live that way. That's what Paul said. He sees that in himself. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. That is such, I wish I could spend the whole message preaching on this. This is such a foundational point. This is, what Paul is saying here is that we're not pointing fingers. God is not pointing fingers at the individual. He's point, as if there's something wrong with the person. He's saying, in all of us, what's wrong is that we're all sinful. And that sin manifests itself in lots of different ways. This is why our flesh often gets riled up when somebody will say, you're wrong, and we go, oh, I'm not wrong. Well, you may not be wrong in how you are, but if you're listening to your sinful flesh, you're wrong. If you're listening to the sin that's in you, as Paul says here, the sin that dwells in me, that's where the problem is. And so then in conclusion, in verse 21, he says, I find the principle that evil is present in me. I can't deny that. The very one who wants to do good. Yes, your pastor has evil living in him. You, guess what? Have evil living in you. That's what Paul said. I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Here's the battle. My mind is this, and my body is this, and I constantly am at odds with these two things. There's friction that's occurring all the time. And his only conclusion is, wretched man that I am. That's a good resolve. That is the resolve. That's the heart of repentance. That's where repentance begins. It's coming to the place, like Paul, where he says, I can't, no matter which way I turn, the battle is raging. I want to do this. I can't do it. I want to do this. I can't do it. I have a desire, but I can't fulfill it. Oh, I'm so sinful. And the Lord says, that's exactly right. That's what I want you to know. And John came preaching that message, just like all the prophets. You're sinful. And you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven unless you trust Christ as your Savior, the one who will pay the price. So it's a difficult life. And it's only through the power of the Spirit working in our hearts that we're able to press on, right? How many of you all would say, boy, it'd be a lot easier to just give up? It's tough. It's hard to live a righteous life. It's challenging. We know that God has commanded us to do it. And so we surrender like Paul and we say, in fact, I didn't even read the latter part of that. Listen to how he, let me go back to Romans 7, verse 25. He says at the conclusion, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. On the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. But thank you, Jesus, that you have paid the price so that I don't have to be perfect. My striving is to follow you. My daily effort is to follow you. 
but you have done the work. And so I put my confidence in you. But again, Jesus' point is now, violent men take it by force. And what he's really saying there is, people who understand what we were just talking about are the ones who are pressing into the kingdom. Not that they're doing the work to get there, the work's already been done, but they're living their life to be holy people. They're living the commandments. They're following the teachings of the Lord. They're living faithfully to everything that God has said. Okay? Now, so because of these challenges, everyone, every soul one day will enter into the kingdom, and every one of them who do must and do understand that they must die to themselves. That's really what it comes to. And continue on, as I've already been saying, the narrow road, a very difficult road. By surrendering what we want for what God wants. This is why we're servants. You know, our sinful flesh says, no, I'm not a servant. I'm the captain of my own ship. Or in our piety, we'll say, I am a servant. But there are times where I like to tell God what we should do. Well, that's not a servant. A servant surrenders to what the master wants. In our case, we have a perfect, holy righteous, benevolent master who has our own, our best interest at heart. So we can't fight in the same way, but we do, which is why Jesus says to all of this, we'll get to this in Matthew 16, but he says, if anyone wishes to come after me, any soul wants to follow me into the kingdom, he must deny himself. It's the continual message. It's right there alongside of repentance. You must turn and it is a life of continually denying yourself. And so the message of repentance really culminated with John the Baptist, whose sole purpose was to lead people to this very understanding as he was ushering in the kingdom. And so to follow Jesus means there are going to be great challenges along the way. It's not going to be an easy life, but we press on. Which again is the same message the prophets proclaimed, which is why Jesus says what he does in verse 13. Look at that. For this is what the prophets and the law prophesied. This very message until John. In other words, this is not a new message, guys. I didn't come to give you something brand new. You just missed it. This is the same thing that has been going on in God's eternal time clock since the days of man sinning. It's just come to a head in John the Baptist, which is why we get to another difficult verse but the Jews would have understood this a little better than we do. But we're listening in. And so he says in verse 14, If you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. Now you and I scratch our heads and we go, what? What's he really talking about here? Now just stay with me. Jesus again is clarifying something for the Jews here. Because they knew better than we do that the scriptures promised that before the Messiah would come, Elijah would be the forerunner. Elijah would be making the way. It's what Malachi prophesied. It was prophesied long before that. When the true Messiah comes, Elijah will come on the scene. So they're looking for Elijah. In fact, if you've been in our Passover Seder services, we haven't done one for years, several years now since my father was alive. I'm planning on doing one this year, and I'm excited about that, so I hope you'll come for that. Uh, but the point is, if you remember the service in every Jewish home, Every year that they do a Passover, they set a place setting for Elijah. 
And the reason they do that is because they are historically listening to what Scripture has taught them of old, saying that before the Messiah comes, Elijah will come first. And so it's a reminder to them to keep looking for Elijah. Now, Jesus comes on the scene and he says to the Jews, hey, if you're listening, Elijah's already come. He came in the spirit of John the Baptist or the other way around. John the Baptist is the spirit, if you will, of Elijah. He's not Elijah, but he is in the spirit of Elijah, which is exactly what Gabriel, the angel, told Zacharias, John's father. Listen back in Luke 1.17. It is he who will go as a forerunner. We got that part for Christ in the spirit and power of Elijah. He didn't say he was going to be Elijah. He said he'll come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. The Jews missed that. And even John himself denied the fact that he was Elijah. I mean, of all people who should have known he was not Elijah come in the flesh again, it was John, right? And so John in John 1 says, when the people ask him, who are you? Are you Elijah? He says, no, I'm not Elijah. And so they're like, well, if you're not Elijah, you're not really the forerunner of the Messiah. So we got to get rid of you because the message you're preaching is a repentant message. And we don't like that. So you got to go. And so they didn't accept John. They certainly weren't going to accept Christ. And so we got a real problem here. And so Jesus is giving a very stern warning. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. A warning to Israel because you rejected your king. Listen now carefully. Because you rejected your king, the entrance into the kingdom will not be easy. This is the warning. It will not be easy. In fact, it is only open to those who repent and accept me for who I am, which leads us to the second warning. All that was under the first warning. So just shortly, we'll be short here, but just listen to this in the second warning. Because Israel rejected their Messiah, greater challenges will come to everyone. Okay? Because Israel rejected, greater challenges will come. Now, what do you mean by that, Pastor? Well, here's the deal. If Israel had accepted Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah when he first came, and John the Baptist's message of repentance had been accepted when he first came, there would have been no reason for a church age. There would have been no reason for a second coming of the king. Why? Because he was here. Why does the king need to come and leave and come back? The only reason he did that, because now he's God and he knows all his plans, but for you and me in a human sense trying to understand this, if the king had come the first time, there would have been great celebration, right? Isn't that why Jesus grieved over Israel? I came to my own and you didn't accept me. I was in your midst and you didn't see me. The prophets all foretold my coming and you didn't accept. And so guess what? I will come. And when I come, you will accept me as the Messiah. But there will be grave consequences for those who don't. Because I've come to set the hearts of mankind right with the Father. Let's keep going on this thought. Because what this means is that another Elijah-like prophet will come. Because God is faithful to his word. And he said that if you, don't, if you should have accepted the prophet who came the first time, John. But since you didn't, another Elijah-like prophet will come because I'm coming again. And there will be a forerunner of me. The question is, who is that going to be? 
We don't really know. But one of the possibilities is that maybe one of the two witnesses that come in Revelation 11. And if you're with us in that study in Revelation, you remember that there's a time of what's called the tribulation and even the great tribulation. The first part of the seven years is known as the tribulation. This is the vision that John the Apostle, not John the Baptist, has as he's a prisoner on the Isle of Patmos. And God gives him these amazing visions of the end times. And in that vision, he understands that there are going to be great judgments that are going to come on the earth. Why? Because people rejected the Messiah. And the Messiah will separate light from darkness. This is why our world doesn't want to hear black and white. It's motivated by Satan and satanic thinking. The flesh wants to follow the father that they have in the fleshly sense, as Jesus said, is the devil. They don't want to hear the message of light and darkness. But Jesus says, no, when I come back, I will separate the light from the dark. And it's going to be in seal judgments, in trumpet judgments, and in bold judgments. You remember that? And it's in that sixth and seventh trumpet judgment, or in between, that we're told God sends two witnesses. And we don't know who they are because God doesn't identify for us who they are, but they will come with incredible and supernatural abilities. Just amazing things that they're going to do, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. They come as amazing witnesses, breathing fire out of their mouths against those who will come against them. Standing for truth and righteousness. So much so that the world is going to hate their message that they're going to kill them. They're going to lie dead in the street for three days. At the end of three days, their body is going to come back to life because the Spirit of God is going to resurrect them and they're going to be cast, taken up into heaven immediately. But during that time, there's going to be some amazing witnesses to who Christ is. Now again, while it's hard to be dogmatic about this, and many theologians over the years have tried to identify who these two people are, one of the speculations is, is that maybe one of them will be Elijah, the original prophet Elijah, whom God spoke of, as I said, in days gone past. In fact, Elijah in that day, in 2 Kings 1, the physical Elijah, he did amazing things for God where he called down fire from heaven over the prophets of Baal. Do you remember that? It's an amazing story. If you haven't read that, you should go back and read it. He pronounces a three-and-a-half-year drought on the land in 1 Kings 17. And interestingly, as we jump to Revelation eleven six, 6, we find that there's also going to be this same kind of tribulation on the earth where there's going to be a severe drought. There's going to be fire that comes out, off, uh, that burns up most of the earth. And even Moses, if he's the second person who comes back, he turned the Nile red with blood in Exodus chapter 11, or excuse me, 7, if you remember that. And so I'm simply saying that in the time of the tribulation, there seems to be a connection between Moses and Elijah from the Old Testament and what they did on the earth and what God will culminate in the, in the earth or on the earth before he comes again the second time. But that's going to be a tough time for people. And it's getting tougher all the time for God's people, isn't it? Is it not getting harder to be a Christian in our culture? Amen. It is. Where the Word of God was really accepted more readily than it is now. Where if you called yourself Christian, the other person would say, Oh yeah, hey, praise the Lord, I go to this church over here. But now you bring up the word pastor, you bring up Christian, and it's like, oh. Almost like you're a troublemaker. Right? I've told you before, it's not going to get better for Christians in the, in the world. Why? Because we become like a John the Baptist. 
we come with the message of repentance. The king is coming. The king is coming. Make ready your hearts. The king is coming, right? That's what we want people to know. We're to go out and share the gospel, share the good news. You can be made right with God. You don't have to go to hell. Surrender, repent, live your life. And the world's saying, get that out of my face. I don't want it. It's going to get more and more difficult, and it's all going to culminate one day in this time of tribulation. And I say all of that to say, the warning from the Lord is, since you have rejected my prophet, John, and therefore rejected me as your Messiah, I will come again. I will come again. And when I do, I will not come as the peacemaker because my church will be gone by then and I will protect all of those who belong to me who are on the earth at the time and I will come as the long-awaited conquering king that Israel you have wanted. But now again, here's where we got to remember this message is to Israel at this point in Matthew's writing. And he's saying, look, Israel, you are my chosen people. I gave you all the messages. I gave you all the warnings. I gave you all the prophets. I'm here on the scene right now, but you have not accepted me. I will come again because I am. Not, I'm going to come, not that I'm going to become. I am the king of all kings, right? I am the king and I'm coming to establish my kingdom. But this time when I come, because you rejected me, it's not only going to be harder on you, it's going to be harder on the rest of the world too. Because I will establish my church. They wouldn't have known this yet. But I will establish my church and they will go through all the things that I'm talking about, about how difficult it is. It will be. You read Revelation 19 and here's the culmination of Jesus' return. One of the most famous passages of all. John looks. He sees heaven opened and behold a white horse. And he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges. Listen to that. In righteousness, he judges and wages war. Who's he waging war against? The ungodly, the rejecters of him. Why? Because he's the king. And the king has no other person that's greater than him, right? This is his world. It's his dominion. It's his earth. He created it all. He's coming to establish his kingdom once again. And John says, his, eye, his eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems or crowns. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, it's a little sneak peek, that's us coming back with him, white and clean are following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. All of that is against the ungodly, those who have rejected him. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, I'm giving you a whole lot more than the Lord gave them. All he says to them is in verse 15. If you have ears to hear, you better open them. You need to listen. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Another warning. If you don't listen, there's nothing I can do for you. And you say, Pastor, again, I really don't like my Sundays to be like this. 
I really, really, really want to go out and just feel good about myself. And I do too. But as I said in the beginning, we cannot feel good about ourselves until we first feel really bad about ourselves. You see, good knows no good without it being compared to bad, right? Light has no meaning unless it stands beside darkness. And so you and I can never enter into the kingdom of heaven until we come to the place where we say there is nothing good in my heart. Only Jesus is good. And only the Spirit of God can make me what I need to be to enter into the kingdom of heaven. In fact, God's demand for people entering into the kingdom of heaven is that you must be perfect as I am perfect, right? Can't do it. So we have to acknowledge we can't do it and trust Christ to be our substitute. Again, it's not an emotional thing. It can be. Often it is. Many people have wept huge tears over the fact that God has rescued them. That's a good place to, to weep a lot of huge tears. But the reality is, it is simply accepting what Jesus has done and who he is. And from that, salvation comes. But it's a tough road, right? Amen? Amen. Thus says the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your, your, your incredible ability and desire to come to this earth to rescue us. And we've said many times before, Lord, that it would be so easy for you to just say, forget you. I'm not going to come. But Lord, you did. And our flesh just so much wants to just say, oh, I don't like that message. I don't, I, don't, I don't like the fact that I have to change. And all the things that we just talked about, and we'll go through it all, Lord, you know. Lord, what we do thank you is that you've given to us the spirit of understanding and discernment so that we can see the truth of your word and, and we can then adjust our lives with your power, with your help, so that we're walking with you and not against you. Lord, it would be our heart's desire, and I know beyond even us, your desire to awaken the hearts of the, the dead souls out, out in the world that they would hear this message, just like you said in verse 15, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Lord, please awaken the souls of men and women before it's too late, before your righteous judgment must come. Lord, we're looking forward to heaven. We're looking forward to the days of bliss and joy and all the things that are free from the difficulties of this life. And we thank you that you've been honest with us and how much greater the joys of heaven will be when we understand how devastating the sinfulness of darkness is. Now free us, Lord, we pray. Free the hearts of those that are bound and not able to see. Open the ears of the, the deaf, Lord, that they may come to you as their Lord and Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.